Recently, the White House released a document called the Comprehensive Framework for Responsible Development of Digital Assets. It summarizes Treasury Department studies of potential crypto policies and regulations. For what it could mean for federal regulators and for the digital asset industry, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke to Dennis Kelleher, co-founder and president of Better Markets. Kelleher is also a former member of the Federal Reserve's Banking and Securities Agency review team. Well, digital assets is really a very broad and largely undefined category encompassing all sorts of new, novel, financial so-called innovations from cryptocurrencies to uh, stable coins to digital dollars to blockchain. It runs the entire range. And that's why uh, they really required a whole-of-government approach to analyzing and thinking about the best way to regulate the many different areas that digital assets impact. And that's why uh, President Biden issued the executive order about six months ago. Uh, And that's why virtually all parts of the government undertook this pretty broad and comprehensive review, which took about six months of, you know, intensive work. And uh, importantly, the baseline uh, was that some of these technologies have promise, but there's there's also lots, lots of them have peril. And uh, that's why sensible policymaking has to proceed with caution. And that's also why the executive order started with um, key priorities, including in consumer and investor protection, protecting financial stability, uh, countering illicit finance, and things like that. Um, and because of that, frankly, we at Better Markets welcomed the executive order and the reports that were just released. They just issued nine reports in connection with that review because we believe they've got the priorities right. And it's really a framework uh, for analyzing uh, the value, or I should say determining if there is any value in some of these promises while at the same time protecting consumers, investors, businesses, financial stability, national security, and the environment, all of which um, could benefit, but all of which could be seriously seriously threatened and compromised um, by these digital assets. It was pretty much the, well, it still is pretty much the wild, wild west when it comes to digital currency. So the industry had to have known that at some point agencies were going to try and keep things under control a little bit. Uh, what do you think will be the reaction from the digital assets industry and its advocates, <laughs> which it has many? <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you really put your finger on something there because uh, the digital asset industry doesn't just have uh, independent um Uh, cheerleaders, uh, they have uh, purchased really uh, a wide variety of advocates from lobbyists and lawyers. In fact, they've used uh, all the tentacles of the influence industry to try and hijack um, the public policy agenda regarding digital assets. It's one of the reasons the executive order was really imperative, so that all the parts of the government could be convened uh, and um, independently analyze of the digital assets, obviously with the input of the industry, but also with all the other stakeholders. And so I think the industry um, overall was relatively unhappy uh, with the framework, um, primarily because uh, it, it really prioritized protecting consumers, investors, financial stability, um, stopping money laundering and other uh, illegal and criminal activities that are being done with digital assets. I should say, however, when we say, quote, the industry, close quote, it's a little bit misleading um, because the digital asset industry really is quite varied and complex. 
Um, and so some parts of it, um, I would guess, were uh, less unhappy than others. But um, the primary um, outcome of the framework in the short term, however, is to urge regulators uh, to use their existing authorities um, to protect consumers, investors, financial stability um, and prevent fraud, theft and financing things like, you know, narco-terrorism, which is a major problem in some of these digital assets. And of course, as you know, um, the American people have already seen over just the last uh, 10 or so months uh, the vaporization of about two trillion dollars um, in crypto assets that have declined from a high in November of 2021 to a low, I think it was in August uh, of 2022. And, you know, that's real money to a lot of real hardworking people who thought uh, that many of these crypto assets um, were valid, worthwhile investments. They believed the representations that were made to them uh, and come to find out not only weren't those representations true, uh, they were often um, not just inaccurate, but false and knowingly false. And now they find themselves um, either having lost that money or their money is in accounts that are frozen or the companies that they dealt with are in bankruptcy and their standing in bankruptcy uh, is very low, all of which is contrary to what they thought. And that's why the executive order prioritizes protecting um, the American people, whether you're a consumer or an investor, or frankly, a taxpayer who's going to pick up the bill when um, financial stability is threatened by new and innovative technologies like this. Yeah, taking a look at this uh, executive order, what do you think is the biggest issue out front that uh, uh, financial agency regulation agencies are uh, concerned about? And which one of them do you think will kind of take the reins as the place to go for you know help if you're affected by one of those issues or uh, if there is an, a problem with uh, criminals using it, you know, is it going to be a DOJ centered effort or is it the SEC that really needs to step up to the plate here in your mind? Um, well, it is uh, a really a whole of government approach. Um, and, you know, the importance of the executive order and the nine reports, which will now get implemented by the various agencies is to make sure uh, that the promise of these various uh, assets is, is real and beneficial and not just a new wealth extraction mechanism with more dangers than they're worth. And that requires not just carefully studying and understanding the perils. It's really a balancing act. Um, you know, the whole, everybody hopes the promise is there. Um, but in the meantime, the prioritization for public policy uh, has to be, um, you know, uh, show me. And that's really what the agencies are going to undertake. Um, and so you have, for example, um, on investor and consumer protection, the um, executive order reports really mandated or didn't mandate, I guess, re-encouraged. Uh, I don't even think that's a word, but the SEC, the CFTC, <laughs> the FTC. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the SEC, CFTC, FTC and DOJ are going to be in the forefront on investor and consumer protection. And they're both going to be out there on front and enforcement. But those are also the agencies that people can go to with complaints, as well as the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, the good news for the American people is that those agencies have been out front uh, every day 
um, fighting the crypto crooks, of which there are far, far too many, as well as others using digital assets for money laundering and other illegal activities, including, for example, evading sanctions on rogue countries. So those agencies will be in the front there. The Fed, the banking agencies, along with Treasury and DOJ, will focus on, broadly speaking, what they call illicit finance, but they'll also be promoting better financial products. So, for example, um, FedNow, which is a new system the Fed is going to roll out, I believe, next year, which is going to enable quicker check processing, and they're going to be focusing on expanding financial um, inclusion. Now, if you, if you go into the financial stability arena, then the Fed, Treasury, and others are going to be looking at the financial stability implications here. It's important to remember two things. Um, number one is it's quite amazing that $2 trillion in wealth, um, unfortunately, uh, literally was vaporized in less than a year. But it didn't have any financial stability implications. Now, it's really bad for investors who lost all that money. On the other hand, it's really good that it didn't cause financial instability. And the reason for that is because regulators up until now have been very good about making sure that the crypto industry was not connected and interconnected to the core of our banking system. And so the financial stability uh, focus of the Fed, Treasury, and others is going to be continue to protect the banking and financial system to make sure that, as you said earlier, kind of the wild, wild west, anything goes, financial predators running amok in the crypto and other digital asset spaces do not get to the core of our banking and financial system. But it's also important to remember that um, there's a goal here fostering really genuinely responsible innovation, but it has to be real and not fraud and not just people trying to sell pie in the sky that's going to make them rich and make everyone else poorer. And the executive order actually strikes this balance very well. So it talks about including the National Science Foundation, the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and others who are going to be involved to ensure that the promises are real and there's benefits to the American people rather than just threats and wealth extraction. Dennis Kelleher is co-founder and president of Better Markets, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview as well as a link to the framework at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs. And he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful, because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.